Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all again this week. It's, again, it's a joy for me to be here. We had a great time together yesterday. Uh, the whole morning we spent just looking at Scripture and how to study Scripture to prepare a message, but really at the end of the day to to look at the text and let to see and to determine what the text says by what it means or what it means by what it says and certainly what uh, the God of the universe said to us in it. And so we had a great time together, good turnout. It was great to be with you, those of you who were there. And uh, again this morning to look together at the Word of God. It's a real joy with, for me. Um, I have to confess, um, uh, when uh, Pastor Denver asked me to do the Bible Hour, he said, you know, I can just teach on a topic. Um, and so I said to him, well, how about the supremacy of Christ? And he said, that sounds great. So I prepared a series of three teachings on the supremacy of Christ. And But what I didn't understand was the nature of the Bible Hour in this church. Certainly in other churches, we have done the Bible Hour. It's typically a, a teaching that takes the form almost like a preach. Is that me? Okay. And so uh, um, I'm sorry if it's not perhaps as interactive as you normally do it. Um, but if there are any questions, you're welcome to ask them when we're done. But uh, specifically, you can point them all to Pastor Denver. He's the one who has all the, all the answers. Um, but without further ado, please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to continue this week looking at the supremacy of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We started last week dealing with the first verse, first few verses this week. But we, we're going to read again from verse 13 all the way through to 23 just to set the context um, for what we're wanting to do. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. And so Paul says in verse 13, he says, It was God who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he focuses his attention on Christ and he says, It's Christ who is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now He reconciled you in the body of His flesh through death 
in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you come in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray together. Father, as we read this text, we are reminded again and again and again of our wonderful Lord and Savior. And may you now truly bless this time as we read and as we study your word together and as we look at our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May he today truly and rightfully be honored and magnified. In his name we pray. Amen. Who does the world say Jesus is? In Islam, and we've seen a lot of focus on Islam right now, Jesus is in their eyes just one of God's highest ranking and most beloved prophets. But he's not seen as the incarnation of God, nor as the Son of God. In the Druze faith, Jesus is considered one of seven prophets together with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Muhammad, and then another Muhammad called Muhammad Ad-Darazi. In the Baha'i faith, uh, they see Jesus as one of the many manifestations of God aimed at reflecting the attributes of the divine into a human world. The Jews of today still reject Jesus as the Messiah. Sikhism views Jesus as a, a high-ranked saint. Mormons believe that Jesus had a beginning just as God the Father had a beginning. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was the first creation of Jehovah. And then you have scholars all over the world, scholars of the so-called historical Jesus, who portray him as, as an ap apocalyptic prophet or a charismatic healer or some kind of philosopher, genius philosopher. They, they view him as a prophet of social change, a rabbi, a Pharisee, a magician, and some even see him as a champion of Christian anarchism. You see the view that the world, even in the Bible times, had of Jesus when they said in Mark 3.21, it says, And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He's lost his senses. They thought of him as a senseless human being. And some have taken this text specifically to propagate the, the false idea that Jesus had some kind of mental disorder, that he was schizophrenic some multiple personality disorder. At Grace Church, we have a, a, a road that we've got to cross from the parking lot to the main sanctuary. It's, it crosses the very busy uh, 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 Roscoe Boulevard. And I remember during COVID, obviously the church defied the governor's orders and stayed open. And uh, so we were all going to church um, wondering whether we're going to get locked up because the police had threatened to come and do so. And as we were crossing this pedestrian crossing at the traffic lights, 
there were obviously LA is very liberal, liberal, and so there there was a guy in a big F three fifty truck, and he was very angry at us for wanting to go to church in this pandemic, and he was screaming verbal abuses at us from his car, and he was saying that we're just a bunch of stupid people for wanting to get together to talk about our imaginary friend. That's what he called Jesus, our imaginary friend. Not a happy guy indeed, but that's how the world sees Jesus. Most would not necessarily doubt that he actually existed, but they deny that he died and was resurrected. They deny that he's God. They deny that he's both Lord and Christ. They deny that he rules over the whole of the universe. They deny that he is sovereign over everything. And it was no different in the days of Colossae. It was no different in the time of Paul. We saw last time how Epaphras, who planted the church in Colossae, um, it was a church that had as a member base primarily Gentiles. How he'd gone through to see Paul in Rome where Paul was imprisoned. And he went there specifically to seek advice from Paul about this heresy that was creeping into the church in Colossae. It was a heresy that was at its very essence denying the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It was, it was making Christ less than who he's supposed to be. And this was being propagated by false prophets, false teachers. Uh, last week I, I called them Gnostics. Gnostics only came much later, but the philosophy of these guys was the same. They were saying we need extra knowledge. We need to grow in our spiritual experience, spiritual knowledge, uh, so that we can come to some heightened idea or heightened place where we will then become gods. Similar philosophy. And so Paul says, well, since I can't go, I'm locked up here in prison. Since I can't go, I'm going to write a letter that you can take to the church from me to address these issues. And so he sends this letter. And in this letter, he counters these false teachers and these false arguments. And in this letter, he specifically addresses the theme of the supremacy of Christ and the power of the gospel message. The very first thing, before he even looks at any of the issues at hand, he addresses the supremacy of Christ. I love the approach. He, he doesn't want to make big deal of, of the heresies, but he makes a big deal of Christ. And he lays down the very foundation for the Christian faith, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. His supremacy, His preeminence, His headship, his, the sole sufficiency of Christ for the church, which is His body. And so in this first part, these verses that we read in Colossians, Paul shows us three aspects of Christ's preeminence. Three aspects which provide us with such a lofty view of Christ that it will dispel any false teaching which comes our way and counters these teachers. He wants us to know that there's no one on this planet like Jesus Christ. No one. 
He wants us to know that Jesus is vastly superior in every single way to anybody who, who has ever lived or ever will live on this earth. And he does this by showing us, firstly, that Jesus is superior in his station as Lord and King. And we looked at that last week from verse 13 to 15 and then verse 17 and 18. We saw that Jesus is superior in his identity as God. We saw that he's superior in his importance, that is, in his first in rank and priority over everything in creation. And we saw his superior influence as the head of the church. And then secondly, this week, we'll look at one more of these, and we'll see how Jesus is superior in his sovereignty over creation. Verse 16 through to 19. And then thirdly, next time, we'll see that Jesus is superior in his salvation, the salvation that we have in Christ. From verse 14 and then from 20 to 23. So superior in his station, superior in his sovereignty, and superior in the salvation we have in him. That's our wonderful Lord and Savior, right? And so with that, let's, let's look today at the superiority of Jesus in his sovereignty. And in Colossians 1 verse 16 through to 19, Paul shows us three ways in which our Lord is superior in his sovereignty. Three ways that will help you to stand firm in your faith, especially when the world comes and tells you that he's less than. In verse 16, we see that Jesus is sovereign over creation. And then in verse 17, we see that he's sovereign over his creatures. And then in verse 18 and 19, we see that he's sovereign over his church. So look with me at verse 16 of Colossians chapter 1. It says, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And Paul introduces for us this verse with the word for, which tells us that he's referring back to verse 15. And of course, in verse 15 of Colossians 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And as we think back to last week, Paul here in verse 15 refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, which, as you may remember, refers to Jesus being the first in order of rank and priority over all of creation. And Paul here in verse 16 wants to reaffirm what he has just said in verse 15, and he wants to give us a sense of urgency to understand that this is who our sovereign Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. He wants to affirm the supremacy of Christ by describing here for us his role as the agent of creation. Hebrews 1-2, referring to God, says that in these last days He spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. 
Christ, friends, is the, he's the agent of creation. The world was created through him. The Father and the Son, they have two distinct functions in creation, yet they work together to bring about the whole of the cosmos, the whole of the physical realm as we know it. We're reminded here in, of John 1.3, which says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, the Apostle Paul reiterates this kind of thing. He says, There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for him, the, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. The same is true in Romans 11.36. Paul says of Jesus, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. I love that. From him, through him, to him. Amazing. Jesus Christ is the creator. He's the creator of everything that exists. Everything in the whole of the universe was made by him. Look at verse 16 of Colossians 1. It says, it, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. And what you can see here are two sets of polar opposites. The heavens and the earth, the visible and the invisible. And the use of these opposites is significant for us because it gives us a sense of totality. That's the purpose of it, to give us a sense of totality. In other words, every rock, every river, every plant, every animal, every person, every government, every, every star, every planet, every asteroid, every molecule, every atom, every raindrop. I can go on and on and on. You can think of it as much as you want. Everything we can see with our eyes, everything that's invisible to the naked eye, from the largest planet to the smallest atom, everything that exists was created by Christ. Just brought into existence by Christ. If it exists, He made it. Paul is saying, guys, I'm simply reminding you who He is. He is the one who stepped out of nowhere onto nothing and spoke it all into being. And of course, you can't hear the words of heaven and earth and not think back to Genesis 1 verse 1, the creation account. And in this chapter, in the whole of the creation account in Genesis 1, eight times we hear the word let. And each time the word let was uttered, something else came into existence. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the word created means to make something out of nothing. He made it all out of nothing. Um, while I was still in business on my desk, I still have it. Um, I had this little green blob that was given to me as a gift by my daughter. It was made out of clay, and uh, it was baked and shaped, and it had a hole in it. It was a pen holder, and she was very proud of this thing, and it was a frog. Uh, 
It has no resemblance to a frog, but in her mind it was a frog. And uh, she painted it beautifully and put eyes on it, and it looked like a very strange little creature. Um, and she was very proud of this thing, and for years, when she came to my office, she would look first to see if it was still where it's supposed to be. You know, and, and I loved it. Um, and it was her handiwork. It was her creation. But the truth, friends, is she didn't create anything out of nothing. She made it out of something. We take things that God made and we combine them and we shape them and we mold them and we create out of those things, we make out of those things our own inventions. But it's only God who can create. And since we know from last week that Jesus is God, we saw in it that He's superior in His station as God, I would remind you that the very one who said, let there be, friends, is your Savior and mine. Amen? But not only that, verse 16 goes on to say, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And before, when referring to heaven and earth, the nouns used here that we read, whether thrones or dominions, or these nouns refer to spiritual powers and angelic beings, both physical, uh, spiritual, and as well as physical, when you consider the earthly rulers and the authorities, the governments. So he's speaking here from, from, from spiritual beings to physical rulers. And by specifying all of them, again we have the sense of totality. It's irrespective of whether they're good or bad rulers, whether it's angels or demons. Paul is making sure that the readers of this letter understand that they are all to submit to the authority of Christ. Because He is sovereign over all of them. He created them. They, he's sovereign over all of them. But what's interesting here, as you look at the grammar, and you see that there is a change in the tense from the beginning of the verse to the end of the verse. In the beginning it says, in Him all things were created. And then it moves on to the end of the verse where it says, all things have been created through Him and for Him. It's a change in the tense from what is known as the, as the eris tense, to the perfect tense, and it draws our attention to the continued goal of creation. There's a sense of a continuing creation, and this points us to the end of the next passage in verse 18 to 23, where Christ restores creation to its intended state. So this verse that we're in here anticipates the final section of this passage, and points to the reconciliation achieved in Christ. The reconciliation achieved through the atoning work of the cross. And we'll look at that more next time. So we've seen, firstly, that Christ is sovereign over creation. We've also seen here now that Christ is superior in His sovereignty over his creatures. He's sovereign 
over his creatures. Look with me at verse 17. Not only did he make this world and all that exists within it, but it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We saw last time in the first part of this verse that Christ is supreme both, both in time and rank. He's firstborn. So there's a sense of his pre-existence, as we said, um, as far as chronology is concerned, but also that he's supreme in his rank and priority. And we've said this a number of times. And this passage here in verse 17 simply reminds us that Christ is in front of everything and everyone in the universe. He's to have first place, friends, in everything. And so what does this look like? How is Jesus to be out front in all of our lives? I touched on it last week. Well, in everything. When we have got to make big decisions in our lives, do you, do you make those with the intention of bringing honor and glory to Christ? Or do you make them considering your needs, your desires, your priorities? Think about choosing a career or choosing a spouse or choosing where to live. How many people choose a place to live or a house to live because it's close to a good church? When you choose what church to go to, do you look for a church that first and foremost honors Christ? How about your church life? Do you go to church, as many people do on a Sunday, to be filled and to be refreshed? I was in a discussion with a, with a pastor one day and he said, you know, our job as pastors is to make people feel good about themselves. They have a hard time about life as it is from Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday. Life is hard. And so they come to church to be refreshed so that when they leave, they feel better about themselves and they can handle the week ahead. Is that why you go to church? Do you go to church just because your mom and dad says you must? Or do you go to church because it's the done thing? Maybe if you're a young guy or a young girl, you go to church because that's where you can possibly find a good guy or a good girl to date. <laughs> go to church because it's just an opportunity to hang out with friends. Or do you go to church every Sunday with a heart that longs to worship Christ, that longs to be together with the body of Christ to, to learn about His Word, to relish in the opportunity to hear God's Word preached by the appointed herald? Do you desire to worship Christ by serving in His body in whatever way you can? Why? Because nothing is as important as Christ. Nothing is to come before Jesus. Nothing is to outshine Jesus. The second part of this verse tells us that He's also the sustainer of all things. In Him, all things hold together. I love that. The pronoun He, there, autos, at the beginning of this verse, 
ties it to the previous verse where we have three prepositional phrases, in him, through him, and for him. And it emphasizes the role of Christ in creation. And to continue this thought in mind, Paul once again uses the prepositional phrase in him to point to the fact that indeed all things, everything in the whole of the universe is sustained by him. It's held together. Everything owes its continued existence to Christ. He didn't just create it and leave it there. He holds it together. The word used here in the Greek means to put together or to hold together and points to Jesus as the power that both creates and then binds the universe together. Friends, the only reason why the planets don't fly off in all directions is because He prescribed their order, orbit and holds them together. The only reasons that the molecules in your body, the molecules that make up your whole body, just don't fly off in all directions. Imagine what we look like. It's bad enough when we wake up, we think our hair has gone off in all directions. But the molecules in our body are held together because of Christ. He holds it together. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Job 33.4 The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Every morning when we wake up with breath in our lungs, we do so not because it's nature. We do so because Christ is the one who gives us that breath. 2 Peter 3.7 But by the word, but by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. It seems like a negative verse. But what I see there is that right now, He's reserving, He's preserving, He's keeping everything together. Christ holds us together physically, but He does so spiritually as well. Don't think for a minute that we don't need Him. He's sovereign over the entire universe in which He's created, but He's sovereign over our lives. He's sovereign over our birth. He's sovereign over our death. He's sovereign over our families and the family that you're born into. What you look like. What your genetics are like. He's sovereign over the body He gives you. He's sovereign over our families. He's sovereign over every part of our existence. And He sustains us through every day of our lives. But friends, more importantly than all of that, because what we have in this world, the bodies that He's given us, that He ordained for us to have, all of that will pass away. But because of His death on the cross and His resurrection unto life and the atonement that He made for sin, He will give us an eternal life. If your faith and your trust is in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, your salvation is secure and you're preserved until the end and you're free from the wrath of God. He sustains our spiritual life from now on forevermore. We will live for all eternity because of Christ. And we'll look at more of that next time. Don't miss it.
So to recap, we've seen that Christ is sovereign over creation. We've seen that Christ is sovereign over His creatures. We also see Jesus as superior because He's sovereign over His church. Sovereign over His church. Verse 18. Read with me. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Paul just continues, verse after verse after verse, he continues to affirm the supremacy of Christ over the community of believers. But the attention now starts to shift from the cosmos, it starts to shift to the church, from creation to redemption. And I've already touched on this last week, but it, it's worth just repeating some of it. Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. This is not Pastor Denver's church. It does not exist to benefit you or me. The church exists. We are here to bring glory to Christ. And that alone. He's to have the preeminence. End of verse 18 says, He Himself will come to have first place in everything. First place. He's to be the focus of all we do in church. He's supposed to be, He is, has to be the centerpiece. He's to be the hub around which every activity in the church takes place. Him and Him alone is to be exalted. Jesus alone is to be worshipped. Jesus alone is to receive the glory as the God of the universe. Every song we sing, every sermon that's preached, every prayer that's uttered, every lesson that is taught, every testimony that is heard, every baptism that is, as one goes through, everything we do and everything we allow in the church must serve to exalt Him. Otherwise, it has no place in the church at all. Why is that? Friends, the only reason the church exists is because Christ died for the church. He paid the ultimate price to redeem the church. That's why He rightfully has first place in everything. Look again what it says of Jesus in verse 18. It says, Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, there's a very interesting use of the words here because by using the word beginning, Paul is once again making reference to Genesis 1.1. Every time we hear the word beginning, we think back to that. And it's pointing again to Christ's sovereignty over and His role in creation. But by adding this qualifier, the firstborn from the dead, he's now highlighting Christ's supremacy over a new creation. Why do I say that? Because between the first and the second creation is the unstated assumption of the fall. After the first creation came the fall, and so there has to be a recreation. And, and to be the firstborn from the dead, as it says here, is to affirm that he is the first to rise from the dead. Acts 6.23, in his defense before Agrippa, Paul declares, he says, that the Christ was to suffer and that is the first of the resurrection from the dead. 
He was going to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Did you get that? He said, and as the first of the resurrection from the dead. He was the first one to be resurrected from death unto life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says the same thing. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And similar to uh, Colossians 1.18, the verb raised is thus implied in the phrase from the dead. Christ being raised from the dead. This lies at the very center of our Christian profession, right? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, what are we doing here? We are here because he rose from the dead. And that's for this reason that the word okay or beginning is used here in a twofold sense of source and primacy. Creation has its origin in Jesus, and so too does the church have its origin in Jesus. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and it's Christ who gives life to the church. His sacrificial death, his resurrection on our behalf, providing new life for the church. And so the word firstborn is used here also in a twofold sense of source and primacy. Just as the church was birthed as a result of his death and resurrection, so too it resulted in Jesus coming to have the first place in everything. As the head of the body, Jesus holds a position of chief, the highest in rank in the church. Turn with me to Philippians 2 verse 8 in your Bibles. Philippians 2 verse 8. And as I move to to landing this message in this hour, I want us to dwell together just for a minute upon the words of this momentous passage. Verse 8, speaking of Jesus, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, that is royal language. That's the language of a king. The language of an ultimate sovereign. And Jesus reigns supreme over the visible world of the invisible world. He reigns supreme over the church. Paul sums up his whole argument for us in Colossians 1 verse 19 saying, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Amen? And once again, he boldly confirms for us that anybody who has any kind of doubt, the fullness, the pleroma of deity abides absolutely and wholly in Christ. It's all concentrated in Him. And it's in Christ that a believer is completely restored. 
and can share in that fullness. John 1.16 says, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Friends, Chris, Christians share in the fullness of Christ. His fullness becomes available to believers. And to that end, we respond with joy and with worship. I love the way John Owen, the Puritan, said it best. He said, said this, The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, far more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole of creation. <coughs> this therefore deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. <coughs> For it is our future blessedness, for if our future blessedness shall consist in living where He is and beholding of His glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel? That by a view of it we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. Friends, what is the supremacy of God in His sovereignty look like for us today. It's worth a daily, consistent reflection upon the person and the work of Christ. The fact that He's God, the fact that He's sovereign, the fact that He died to redeem us, that God exalted Him above everything else, causes us with bended knees to bow before Him, to surrender to Him as Lord, and to live obedience to His Word, so that we can bring honor and glory to Him. And you'll say from the heart the words of the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 3, 6, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. It is the greatest joy of our lives as believers, as those who are born again of your Spirit. As we surrender our lives to you afresh every day, it's the greatest joy of our lives, Lord, to know that you reign supreme and that you are sovereign over all, every molecule, every mountain, every planet. It brings us great comfort and peace and joy in these unsettling times and in this crazy world in which we live to know that we serve a God like you who died for us, who was resurrected unto life, and who keeps us for all eternity. We bring you, Father, glory and honor. Amen.